Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I will tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning, and saddled his ass, and took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and cleaved the wood for the burnt offering, and rose up, and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again unto you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son, and he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went, both of them, together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thine son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day. In the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And all God's people said, Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray Thee now that You would open up Your Word unto us, that we might see the gospel which Thou hast so simply set before us, and we might see Christ, whom Thou hast given to redeem us unto Thyself. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Um, When I read this to my children many years ago, they got a little concerned that maybe God might ask me to offer up them. (laughs) So it resonated with them as terms of what Isaac must have felt like or what Isaac must have faced when God God tempted Abraham. Um, However, we know it has a happy ending here. We know that the um, substitutionary principle is set before us here. But nevertheless, when you're a little kid, you just wonder what God might ask your parents to do that might make life difficult or harmful to them. So um, nevertheless, um, 
God has set before us here, a simple picture of the gospel, and I want us to appreciate that. In verse 1, there's a word that is difficult for people to understand, but it has two different meanings, and that's the word tempt. It said that God did tempt Abraham. And so we should understand from Scripture that it has two different meanings. The word tempt has two different meanings in Scripture. The first one, which is the one we most uh, commonly think of, is to... um, Endeavor to draw somebody into evil or endeavor to draw somebody uh, to commit sin. That is one meaning of the word. Uh, The other meaning of the word is to prove somebody, to test them or to try them. And that is obviously the meaning that is set before us here. But with respect to the first meaning of the word, um, in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, we see uh, set before us the definition of what it means to draw somebody into evil and the consequences thereof. And it says very clearly that God never does that. In verse 13 of James chapter 1, it says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. We know that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked or the destruction of the wicked. He brings judgment upon them, but he takes no pleasure in it. He is certainly not going to place something before somebody that might cause them to stumble in sin. And we know that the wages of sin is death, for which then he would then have to um, um, bring eternal damnation upon them. He's not going to do that. It says here that he does not, neither tempteth he any man. Verse 14, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed, then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. Don't blame God for your sin. Don't blame God as somebody who might have caused you to sin or drawn you into sin. He does not tempt any man. Satan is the tempter. He's called that in 1 Thessalonians 3.5. He is called, uh, he has said that the tempter, uh, we know that in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapter 4 that the Satan does tempt uh, Jesus when he's in the wilderness and he he does so unsuccessfully. Um, So Satan tempts people and we can tempt other people with sin too. You know that when you run with the wicked people of the world that that's what they want to do. They want to draw you into their lifestyle. They want to draw you into the sin uh, that, that they commit. And we as Christians are admonished uh, and and told not to do that, that we should not put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. And we can do that unwittingly. Um, By way of example of that, if you're going to have a bunch of people over for dinner and you know that one person is a, I'll put these in quotes, a recovering alcoholic, somebody that used to be a wine bibber that would drink too much, you would not set a glass of wine in front of that individual and draw them into sin. Um, As a matter of fact, you ought not to set wine in front of anybody if that individual's there, though we have liberty to do those things, but you don't want to cause your brother to fall. You don't want to put a stumbling block in front of them. So we also sometimes have to watch what things we say because we can start to plant seeds in people's minds. We can um, talk about a particular thing that we might have been involved in, and by by golly, I'm glad I didn't go down that road because such and such a thing would have happened. But you plant a seed in somebody's head, and then they start to get drawn away by their own Um, less, and then they're enticed in their own mind, and then they go down that road and commit sin. So we don't want to do that. We want to be um, circumspect with our speech that we don't cause anybody else to sin or to stumble. So God never tempts anybody to do evil. But what God does do is the second definition to prove or try somebody. He does try and prove us, and he does that not infrequently, and he's going to do it here to Abraham right now. Now, 
God does that not because he doesn't know what we're going to do, because he does know exactly what we're going to do. He knows what's in the hearts of every man. All things are naked and open unto him, under the eyes of him with whom he have to do. He knew from before the foundation of the world that a providence for sin needed to be taken care of. So he knows what road man was going to go down. He knew uh, everything that man was going to do. Um, but what he, what, the reason he tempts us and he proves us is to get us to grow and to stretch us in terms of our, our faith and our walk. Think of him as a personal trainer, if I can speak of this in the most simplistic of ways. You're laying on the bench, you're pressing 100 pounds, and he walks up, puts another five pounds on each side. He gets us to grow and strengthens our faith through our various trials. He gets us to mature as Christians. Scripture refers to him as the potter and we are the clay. He's ever shaping us and conforming us into the image of his son, and that is not a static process. It is a dynamic process whereby he enters into our lives in very meaningful and real ways to try us, to prove us, and to stretch us and to cause us to grow. In Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he is described as a refiner's fire. God is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap, and he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Well, what does a refiner of silver do? Well, he heats up the fire underneath the, um, the um, crucible in which silver is, and he melts it, and that takes heat, and that's going to be uncomfortable to you as God cranks up the heat in your life. And then when the slag uh, floats to the top, he scrapes it off, the intention of which is he'll continue to do that until he can see his own reflection in the silver. So, what, so it's like a mirror. What is he doing? Why? He's conforming us into his image. And so when he sees his image in us, in a purified way, why then he knows that the, uh, the trial is, is doing what he intends it to do. It says, He shall purify the sons of Levi, which in context refers to the church, and purge them as gold and silver. So we should therefore, since he's described as a refiner and a purifier, we should expect him to try and to prove us, again, not for his benefit, but for our benefit. In Psalm chapter 66 Verse 10, it says, For thou, O God, hast proved us, thou hast tried us, as silver is tried. So he's uh, speaking directly to Malachi chapter 3. He tries us as though we were silver. In Proverbs chapter 17, verse 3, again with this same metaphorical language, he says, The refining pot is for silver and the furnace for gold. But the Lord trieth the hearts. So as we think of uh, a metallurgist trying these different uh, metals in terms of their purification, so does the Lord work on our hearts. He proves our hearts. He wants us to grow in our grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So back in James here, we see language like this now in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, and also in verse 12. James chapter 1, he says in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. So he's defining the word temptations here in verse 2 with the word trying in verse 3. Count it joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. In other words, when your faith is tried, you're going to grow in patience. But let patience have her perfect work, 
that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. In other words, you're more complete in Christ. You're growing in the direction that the Lord wants you to grow, which would be in conformity with his Son. In verse 12 of James chapter 1, he says, Blessed is the man that endureth temptations, for when he is tried, again, you're putting those two words, he's trying the individual, or he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. So he's counting it a joy and he's counting it a blessing when you are tried. That's the means and agency by which the Lord um, causes our faith to increase and our faith to grow. Now, obviously, Christ was tried. Christ was proven. He did not need to grow, but he did it for our benefit so that we would appreciate that he was perfectly qualified to be the captain of our salvation. Um, Everyone here has worked in a job, and everyone here has had uh, experienced good managers and bad managers. Um, And my, my experience has been that when I have suffered under a bad manager, I have found that they did not spend very much time Um, in a subordinate position. In other words, you can't be a good chief if you're not a good Indian. You can't be a good leader if you don't know how to follow. And that was a military axiom that if you can't follow, you'll never be able to lead. And you see that when the Lord picks kings in the Old Testament, that certainly when he uh, made uh, Saul king, he had no experience. Boom, he was king. With respect to David, David the Lord tried and proved for many years before he... um, became king of Israel. Moses, 80 years old when he leads the people out of bondage. So the Lord appreciates this principle and it is one set before us in scripture and one that we have experienced also in life. Um, The worst captains I ever flew for were guys that upgraded very quickly. They did not know how to follow and they did not know how to work with their crewmen. They don't know how to delegate. They don't know how to ask you to do things in a proper way. They don't, it just, it was never a good situation with a guy that upgraded quickly. So if you can't follow, you can't lead. So in Hebrews chapter 5, speaking of Christ in verse 8 and 9, it says, Though he were a son, yet he learned or experienced obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, meaning perfectly qualified, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. So the Lord suffered many things. He certainly was not lacking in anything, but for our benefit, um, he was made perfectly qualified through the things that he suffered. He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And so tempted in the context of both meanings of that language, where he was tempted with evil by Satan, he was tempted by evil from uh, men, but he was also um, tempted in the context of he was tried um, by his Heavenly Father and all of the things that, that he suffered. So with respect to him uh, being tempted in all points uh, as we were, yet without sin, We can appreciate what it says in Hebrews 4.15 that says that we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings with our infirmities but was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. He's perfectly qualified to be the mediator between God and men and we should appreciate and understand that he is very empathetic and very sympathetic to our the issues that we face because he faced every one of them um, on his own. So... This idea of trying is something the Lord did to his son. It's something that he does to us. And that's what we see set before us here in um, Scripture with respect to what Abraham's going to face. Now, with respect to Christ and the things that he suffered, we know that he was obedient in all points, 
even unto the uh, point of death, the death of the cross. He was obedient in all things. And I want us to keep that in mind as we go back and take a look at Isaac as a type of Christ. So God tempts us in the context of him trying us, improving us, and he did that big picture. He did that to uh, national Israel after he removed them from Egypt. Actually, their time in Egypt was also a point of trying. And I would share with you that they failed at every step of the way. They failed at every step of the way. In Exodus uh, 16 and Deuteronomy 8 and many other places in the Old Testament, the Scripture says that God proves and he tries Israel. He did so for 40 years as to whether they would walk in his laws or no, whether or not they would obedient to him, and ultimately it resolves into will they or, or do they love him. You know, the Lord says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So this proving and trying of hearts as to whether or not people will obey him, whether or not the Israelites would obey him, boils down to whether or not they love him. And the short answer is no. They did not obey him, and that was indicative of where their hearts were. New Testament, that principle is brought forward, and the Lord tells us the reason he gave the law was to show that we are sinners, to prove to us that we are sinners. And so when you look at the law, endeavoring to keep it, you realize that you can't keep it, and so you are tried and proved through the law that you cannot obey. Um, And therefore you have a need for a Savior, which is Christ. So as we look at this trial in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1, we ask ourselves whether or not Abraham will be obedient. And that's a fair question for us to ask. Will Abraham be obedient to God? In verse 2, he's told that he's going to make a burnt offering. And I think we all should appreciate that Abraham knows what a burnt offering is. He's made many um, substitutionary offerings on altars in the book of Genesis. He knows what happens to the animal when it goes on the altar. So he really is faced with the question, does he believe that God will raise Isaac from the dead. Does he believe in the resurrection? And that's a fair question to ask every Christian. Do you, or every person that says they're a Christian, do you believe in the resurrection? Because particularly as we approach the end of our lives and we uh, are suffer from very serious medical infirmities, we have to ask ourselves, are we trusting in Christ? Do we believe in the resurrection? Do we believe that he was raised from the dead, and do we believe that he will raise us from the dead? So he here has to now give up the son whom he loves. The Lord says, this is the son that you love. Later he says, it's his only begotten son. Now we know that he's had Ishmael as a son. Ishmael he's already put away. That was a trial too. But and, uh, is he? what's he going to do with his beloved son? And as I mentioned to you before, that's the first place the word love in the Bible is um, shows up, and it's in the context of a father to his son. So, with respect to Abraham's trials, they're really ramping up now. The first one he had to deal with was, will God keep me safe? God has said he will make a great nation out of me. He gets into the land of Canaan, and he starts looking around at what the Canaanites are doing. He starts to fear for his life, and so he and Sarah contrive uh, to deny her as his wife so that they won't take her, that they would take her and not kill him. So he failed in that one, and he ends up in uh, Egypt. Then he has to ask himself the question, will God provide for me because there's a famine in the land, and what does he do? He goes down to Gerar, and then he struggles with the issue with Abimelech. So he failed that test. And then the question is whether or not God will give me and Sarah a son, and he failed that one too because he lay with Hagar. Both of them failed it because it was uh, Sarah's idea. 
um, that he lay with Hagar? And so the answer is no. He's had some real struggles, and they've ramped up, and he has not been doing very well. He's failed all of them. So he's had to send Ishmael away, away, and there we see that he was obedient to God. So we can appreciate that what faith God has given him is beginning to increase. So now only Isaac remains, and now he's called upon to put Isaac to death upon the altar of God. Trials, again, have really ramped up for him, and he's really being stretched here. He knows his body is as good as dead. Isaac is at least seven years old, or at least six years old. He's probably older because he's going to be the one who's going to carry the wood up the mountain. And so uh, we should appreciate that um, he and Sarah were never able to bear children until God miraculously permitted that conception. And they've had no children since that time. So uh, as a couple, God has made it pretty clear that Isaac is the beloved son in whom the promises will be fulfilled. So what's he going to do here? All the promises are going to be through Isaac. If I offer up Isaac, God must raise him from the dead to fulfill his promises. So Abraham has to believe what God has said. He has to believe in the resurrection and the life, and he's got to believe in Christ because that's whom the resurrection comes through. Now, we know what he did. We know what he did by virtue of what things Christ said, and we know what he did by virtue of what's recorded here in Genesis chapter 22. In John chapter 8, verse 56 through 58, the Lord says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad. Then said Jesus, un- then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. So in verse 56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and was glad. Well, what did he see? He saw the cross. He saw the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It says that when he was a Uh, had gone three days, he saw afar off, he saw the place where the Lord was leading him. He saw the glory of God. He saw the resurrection. In John chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, the Lord speaking of himself says, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Fair question to ask all Christians. It was a question that obviously Abraham had to deal with, but we know that he did believe in the resurrection and the life by virtue of what he did. Christ here says in John 8 that, yes, he saw my day and was glad. But we know that he offered up Isaac because the Scripture chronicles that very thing. And so it says here, because of what he did, because he offered up Isaac, because of the work he did in James chapter 2, Verse um, 21, it tells us that it brought out the fact that he was righteous. James 2:21. it says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? That work that Abraham did, offering up his son Isaac, says here that he was justified by that work when he offered Isaac up upon the altar. Now, what does that mean? 
that's the $64,000 question that uh, a lot of people um, stumble with and can't get past in terms of whether or not works are required for just legal justification. So what does this mean? I will sum it up. It means his works brought out the fact that he was righteous. His works brought out the fact that he was righteous. The commentary on this comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. By that offering, Abel obtained witness, which is what justification means in that context, that he was righteous. So I'm going to substitute Abraham's name in there. By faith, Abraham offered up Isaac unto God, a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, or as a matter of fact, any sacrifice that had been made up to that point, and since that point, with the exception of Christ himself, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. So Abraham's offering revealed or gave witness of the fact that he was righteous. That's past tense, was righteous. James 2.17 tells us that even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone. The scripture is telling us that faith must be accompanied by works. Faith must be accompanied by works. Verse 18 Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Abraham showed us his faith by his work of offering up Isaac upon the altar. It was a witness of the fact that he was righteous. So, up to this point in Abraham's life, I don't see any particular thing that he has done that would definitively set him apart as a man of faith. I've seen nothing in his life that would definitively set him apart as a man of faith. This work does set him apart definitively. It gives witness, as did Abel's offering, that he was righteous. In other words, already righteous. He did not become righteous through the offering, was not made righteous through the offering, but because of this work, Rather, the work that he did offering up, it gave witness that he was righteous, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, about Abel. Obtained witness that he was righteous. Verse 23 of James chapter 2 says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. And so we see that the fulfillment or manifestation of the righteousness that God imputed to him back in Genesis 15:6 came to fruition now and uh, came in evidence to us by virtue of what he offered up. And in Genesis 15:6 it says and he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. And we covered that verse some time ago, and you can go to Romans chapter 4 for the commentary on that so you can appreciate it, what it means to impute righteousness to an individual irrespective of their works.
So back to basics here with respect to faith and works, and that comes from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We've read it a hundred times, but it's very basic. Ephesians 2, 8, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. The faith is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. God gave you and me faith to believe on him through which we are uh, through which righteousness is imputed, just like he gave it to Abraham. Again, that's Romans chapter 4. God saves everybody the same way. There's no change here. Verse 9, not of works. Not of works, lest any man should boast. So clearly those that claim that you have to have works as a means and agency of justification, however minor, directly contradicts the very clear language of this work of this um, scripture. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, again, fruits of salvation, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Clearly, Abraham offering of Isaac was a good work that Abraham was foreordained to um, walk in. So, again, this teaches us the basic principle here that the good work that we see Abraham do in terms of that which gave witness that he was righteous was a result of the faith that was given to him as we in Genesis 15:6 that we see uh, set forth clearly in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 um, verses 8 through 10 so faith is given to certain men just as it was given to Abraham and the manifestation of that faith is the works that these people then do I want you to appreciate that Abraham was made a promise um, 25 years before the child was born, and now it's been at least six years since that time has taken place. So sometimes the manifestation of our faith through works takes a long time for people to see. It takes a long time for us to grow in faith through various trials that um, something like this might be manifest where others can look at us and go, that must be from God. That fellow is a Christian because I'm seeing that the things they are doing and they're consistent with the things that Christians ought to do. But uh, a lot of times they look at us just like they did Abraham, just like Abimelech looking at Abraham and says, what is this thing? What have you done? She was your, she's your wife and you told me her sister. People see a lot of that in us. And we, we pray that we would move through those and enter into works that uh, would be evident, would give witness that we are righteous. Um, so, again, faith and works go hand in hand, as James chapter 2 tells us here. Works are the result or fruit of the faith which was given to us by God. And they simply bear witness to us of our righteousness, which is by faith. So, in Genesis chapter 22, uh, verse 1, we see that our omniscient God, the God who knows everything, he knows what's on Abraham's heart, he knows why we do things, he knows what our thoughts and intents of the hearts are, he knows what our motivations are, he's going to prove Abraham's heart, uh, not for his benefit, not for God's benefit, but for Abraham's benefit that he would grow, and for our benefit that we would appreciate and learn these gospel truths from what we see before us here. So um, God is going to show us all that Abraham is faithful and that he trusts in God. This is not unlike, although a very minor version of what God did with respect to Job. Job and the relationship that he had with God and what things were set before him proved that he would not deny God no matter how uh, much trouble Satan and the world gave him. He never denied God because God would not let him. So 
Abraham here is going to be tried by God for Abraham's benefit and for our benefit. God is going to prove to Abraham and all us all that Abraham believes in the resurrection. And this God does when he tells Abraham to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering. And we see that Abraham obeys, knowing that God must raise Isaac back from the dead to fulfill his promise to bless all the nations of the earth in his seed. Now, that we know Abraham believes that God will raise Isaac from the dead comes from verse 5 of Genesis chapter 22, where we read that as he goes up to offer his son Isaac, he tells his young man that he and Isaac shall both return unto them, revealing the state of his mind, revealing the state of his heart, that he knows walking up the hill to slay his son, he says, we're both coming back. He's telling us um, that that is the state of his heart, that he believes in the resurrection. So the details of what is set before us here, um, where they are, that they're in Mount Moriah, that uh, uh, who is it upon the mount where the offering is to be made, who is carrying the fire, who is carrying the knife that's carried by the father, who is carrying the wood that's carried by the son, what the attitudes of both of them are. They're both willing. Isaac is the one carrying the wood, and he allows himself to be bound. We can appreciate when we're looking at these details here that God is teaching us something more than just what happened between Abraham, the father, and Isaac, the son. We can note and get a sense of Isaac's innocence, and we perceive that he is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before his shearers is dumb, so he opened not his mouth." With the exception of him asking one question, Isaac is silent. There is no protestation manifest when Isaac is bound and laid upon the altar of wood, uh, laid upon the altar with the wood. Um, Surely Isaac has seen his father make many burnt offerings unto God, and so we can appreciate that he knows what's coming. He knows what happens to the burnt offering. And yet here we see that he is upon the altar of God without protest. It is the answer to the question that he asks, where is the lamb for a burnt offering that opens up this whole drama to us as a representative of what God the Father and God the Son have done for us? From their perspective, it is a representative of what God the Father and God the Son will do. The answer in verse 8 of Genesis chapter 22 to that question is, God will provide himself a lamb. Now, think about that language. God will provide himself a lamb. It doesn't say God will provide for himself a lamb, but God will provide himself a lamb. He himself will be the lamb for the burnt offering. He will provide himself a lamb as the Lamb of God for his people. He himself will God provide as a substitution for us, as a substitutionary offering in our stead, in our place. And this we see as the drama unfolds, where we see a substitute for Isaac. In verse 13 we read, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns, And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up as a burnt offering in the stead of his son. So the gospel in its simplicity in terms of substitutionary offering is set before us right here. Though we should die for our sins, I'm speaking now as Isaac, as a representative of the church, as the spiritual seed of Abraham, um, 
we should die for our sins. Jesus, the Son of God, is described as the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. When he shows up on the scene at the Jordan River to be baptized, John the Baptist points to him clearly and says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That Lamb, God is providing himself. He is the Lamb of God. In verse 13, we note that the ram is behind Abraham. So though Abraham looks forward to the cross, rejoicing to see the day of the Lord, and he saw it, though he looks forward to the cross, we see that the ram he finds is behind him. And so we can appreciate that Jesus is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And that's what it says in um, Revelation 13, 8, that he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So Abraham finds the ram behind him, indicative of God's substitutionary providence for the sin of man before man was even created. That the ram's horns are caught in the thicket is indicative of Christ Jesus being encumbered in the sins, with the sins of those whom he came to save. Thickets and thorns and thistles represent sin. That comes from Genesis chapter 3. Horns represent power and authority, and you can see that in the book of Revelation. So to help us appreciate um, the representative nature of these things, um, God makes it as clear as possible when we see that when Jesus was condemned, a plated crown of thorns was placed upon his head, um, directly relating us to this verse where we see the ram caught in the thicket uh, by his horns. So um, in this drama here in Genesis chapter 22, God sets before us many truths to help us appreciate what things he has done um, to be our atonement for sin, to be our substitutionary offering for sin, to reconcile a people unto himself. In verse 2, we see that the sacrifice is going to take place on Mount Moriah. That's the place where Christ was crucified. That's the mountain upon which the uh, Solomonic Temple was built. We see that um, um, and know that Christ is God's only begotten Son, only beloved Son. And so it is said of uh, Isaac here that he's his only begotten Son, that he's his only that he is his beloved Son. In verse three, we appreciate that Abraham like God, does everything that is required to make this offering. It is his son that is to be offered up. We see that he saddles his asks and make his ass and makes preparation for the journey. He cleaves the wood. He takes the two young men, suggestive of the two thieves that went to the um, place where Jesus was crucified. Um, but I want us to appreciate that when they arrive, we note that only the Father and the Son go up into the mountain. Just like when Christ was crucified, between the sixth hour and the ninth hour, there was darkness upon the face of the earth. No one entered into um, the sacrifice that Christ made. It was between the Father and the Son alone. Nobody saw the wrath that was poured out upon him because darkness was over the face of the earth. These other individuals here are told to remain where they are while he goes up alone to the um, altar to offer up his son. Um, we see that the transaction took place at Mount Moriah, and again, as I said, it was exclusively between the Father and the Son. Um, we see here in verse 6 that it is in the hand of the Father is the fire and the knife, indicative of his wrath the wrath of the Father that is to be poured out on the Son. 
And while the sun, all the while the sun is quietly bearing the wood, which Christ bore the cross, um, save only one question is asked for our benefit. The son we see here is ever obedient unto death and allows himself to be bound without protest and laid upon the altar. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, it tells us that Abraham offered up his only begotten son, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence he also received him in a figure. So Hebrews 11 is telling us that this is very much a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. So um, we note in what spiritual gospel truths are presented for us here um, that the Lord is teaching us in Genesis chapter 22 what things he did um, to um, conform us to his image and to reconcile us to the Father. And as you finish up this section in Genesis chapter 22, he says that I and the lad will go up yonder and worship and come again unto you, come again to you. We notice that Isaac is conspicuously absent from the rest of Genesis chapter 22. You don't see him. He said he's bringing him back. We know that he brought him back. But God teaches us things by things that are included in Scripture and some things that are not included in Scripture. Isaac is missing here. We don't see that he has come back. Um, we don't see him in Genesis chapter 23. We don't see Isaac in Genesis chapter 24 when his father sends his steward, likened unto the Holy Ghost, to seek a bride for his son. Uh, do I need to hammer the table here? I'm talking about Christ. Christ is in glory. His father has sent the Holy Ghost in this world as a bear witness of him to find a bride for himself. So when do we see Isaac again? We see Isaac again here in the end of chapter 24 when he's presented to his bride. Isaac shows up in verse 62 of Genesis chapter 25. That's the first time we see Isaac since when he's offered up. And again, as his church, we will see Christ when he comes in his glory to receive us, his church, as his bride. So setting before us here a wonderful picture of all the things that God the Father has done through his Son, Jesus Christ, and indeed through the Holy Ghost, uh, which we'll cover in Genesis chapter 24 when a bride is found for his son, we should appreciate um, what things the Lord has done and how thankful we are that he has done everything that is required to redeem a people unto himself. And what works we may do is simply a manifestation of the faith that was given to us and bears witness of the fact that we are just and righteous with God. To that I say, Amen. Amen.